Hello and welcome to Canon and My name's Michael and I'm a Spurs fan. And my name's Jason and I'm an Arsenal fan. And it's been another wild and wacky weekend in the Premier League. Um, we should probably start, I think, with probably the more boring of the, the two teams and the two matches. And that is Arsenal and their one <laughs> defeat to Manchester City. Um, and I suppose, Jason, my question to you is the same as it was the other week when we spoke about the Liverpool game. And that is, do you think Arteta's approach in these big games is too defensive, too negative? And are you worried about the fact that ever since Fulham on the opening day, the rest of Arsenal's matches have been rather dull, cagey, low-scoring affairs? Does that concern you in any way? Um, it's slightly concerning. I mean, when I think back to all those big games from years ago and not, and not too far away his history, um, you know, we were getting demolished in these games. Played off the park, three nils as a minimum. Um, we seem to have got those score lines down, but it's still not enough. Um, what concerns me more is the style of play. You know, we don't really look at the moment like we're creating those chances. And that was kind of where the whole transfer thing came into play where we thought yes it's very nice to have Thomas Partey someone who's probably quite similar to to Shaka in his style um, but we need someone who's a hybrid on Ceballos uh, and El Nene and that hasn't that definitely I believe won't happen through Partey um, and again it goes back to that reliance on Aubameyang who's just gone on such a goal scoring drought I don't know what to say anymore I mean it's absolutely it's 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 not. I'm not sure if it's coincidence that when he signed his contract, something switched in his head, like we've always seen. Um, I think the commitment's certainly there, but maybe there's a little bit of pressure he's putting on himself to be that talisman now and get us to where we think we need to be. Um, but back to that City game. I mean, I can't really fault us. It wasn't us having a bad game per se, and and but City didn't look all all that great, and it it kind of frustrates me that. You know, both Liverpool and City were having stumbling performances before that, and then we still go and lose to them like we usually. So I don't think I can say that it's going down that old path of um, of uh, you know bad results, uh, bad performances in the big games, but certain, especially because of the way we ended last season and, and the cup games. Um, but something, it's something that we just, I, I wasn't excited again. And I think I said it the other day, it felt like, it feels like inevitable loss. And I'm slightly worried that Arteta's, the honeymoon period's over. And now it's really about how you're going to, you know, get the results to take us back into the, the Champions League spaces. And I always said, you want to win all those small games, the big games you'd love to win. Um, but it's not necessarily a necessity. It's those smaller games, and we've done that this year um, so far with the West Ham game, the Fulham game. Um, I'd be slightly concerned if we didn't get a result at home to Leicester. Um, that'd be a shame. But then, you know, we have Leeds United coming over. We have a couple of Europa League games. So it's it, nothing's a given. But I'm just... I, I, I'm trying not to get on that kind of high horse of mine where I want the manager out and the players out and transfers galore. I think there's definitely a squad there and there's definitely a manager there. I just think they need to come up with a couple of new ideas um, because I think already they may be being found out a little, but the only move they seem to have had for the eight months is playing out the back, um, punting it up down the wing, the winger crossing it to a Bamiyang score and it's not working anymore. Um, but... Saying that, 
still ahead of Spurs, which is always a nice treat. Um, still in touching distance of the top four, numeric uh, number-wise, and uh, obviously a mathematical chance of winning the title, which is always what we like at this stage of the season already. Um, so can't complain too much, but yeah, I, I'd say it's a watch this space with me in Arsenal for sure. Um, and let's 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 not freak out too early. Um, and kind of turning the tide to you, I suppose, the more entertaining of our clubs weekends. I mean, I can certainly say that uh, whilst I was in a way slightly happy to see what was happening at the beginning because of my fantasy team, it kind of felt like the best of both worlds when uh, little um, Lanzini did the biz. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean if, if I were, if to, I were repeat to repeat hear what I said when that Lanzini goal went in, then I think I'd get this podcast taken off iTunes or Acast or SoundCloud or wherever people are listening to this. It was the angriest I've reacted to uh, an opposition goal, probably since what looked like it was going to be the last minute winner for City and Sterling in the Champions League before VAR ruled it out. Alas, there was no VAR to save us this time round. And I think the reason why I was so angry was because, as you said, that first half performance was so good. I mean, in the first half, it was some of the best football I think I've seen Spurs play ever. I mean, going 3-0 up in the first 15 minutes, Kane, Son, Undembele, the movement, the passing, the pressing, the physicality, everything about it was just was just awesome. It was a joy to watch, particularly coming off the back of that Man United game. It reminded me of the, um, the last season at White Hart Lane, the 16-17 season, where we would just regularly demolish teams at home and kill the game off in, in the first half, which is what should have been the case this time around. And, you know, you get to 82 minutes, still 3-0 up, and you you should be winning that game. And I didn't think the game was over at 3-0 because I am a Spurs fan and I know what we're capable of. And I also know that West Ham, this is their cup final. And and Spurs-West Ham has always been a crazy fixture. It's always been one that's had, it's been high scoring, it's had late drama. I mean, Mourinho's very first game in charge was away at West Ham. We went 3-0 up, it finished 3-2. They scored two goals late on could have been 3-3 that day. Uh, almost a year later, they go one better and it is 3-3. So I, I didn't think the game was over. But because of how dominant we were and because it was the 82nd minute, when West Ham got the first goal back, my initial reaction was, oh, that's annoying, no clean sheet. It wasn't, oh, they're now going to get a second and a third. But then once that own goal goes in from Sanchez, the game, the psychology of it completely changes. And there's kind of two competing narratives now. Looking back at it, now the anger is somewhat subsided, although I'm still haunted by Bale's miss and, and Lanzini's goal, which is that was it just a freak, you know, a fluke, you know, that Sanchez's own goal and the, that Lanzini shot, which was a one in a million wonder goal. Those are things that, that don't happen every week. And it'd be easy just to say, look, we've been screwed over by the gods of football. These things happen or is it indicative of something deeper? And I think both of those two things are true because I think, you know, you're not going to get goals like Lanzini's and own goals like Davis and Sanchez's every week. But at the same time, there is a, you know, Spursiness doesn't come from nowhere. And if you look back at our, the games we played this season, there's already a pattern emerging where we are almost all of the goals we've conceded at home have come as a result of in-swinging free kicks from the left-hand side. That's how Everton scored. Two of West Ham's three goals came from that. Newcastle's penalty was a, a result of an in-swinging free kick from the left-hand side. So we're, we're giving away these needless free kicks in dangerous positions and then not properly defending them. I think from open play, we've only conceded maybe one, two goals. 
the rest have all been from set pieces and penalties. So that tells me that, you know, in open play, the, the team shape, the structure, the organisation is there. But individual players, the same old players are making the same old mistakes with the same results to give away silly free kicks and then not defend them properly. And someone like Davison Sanchez, for example, like I said, the own goal is unlucky. Nine times out of ten, that header goes out for a corner or go, you know, goes somewhere else. But he was shaky in that game from minute one. He gave away the penalty against Man United the other week. And the fact of the matter is, he's been at the club, what, three, four years now? And it's not just that he hasn't improved. He's he's actively got worse. When he first came in 17-18, he, he looked brilliant. But ever since then, he's regressed. He, and, and then you look at Alderweireld, who is only going to get worse because of his age. He's not going to get any better. Dyer, who's a converted centre-back and who's been giving away penalties himself, and then Tanganga, who's injured, and the new signing, Joe Roden, who has come up from the championship. Who knows, maybe he'll he'll come straight into the team and, and change things completely, but you can't rely on him. And you can see now why we were so desperate to sign a centre-back and how damaging it might end up being not to have signed a centre-back. That being said, you look at how many goals everyone else is conceding in the league, Liverpool letting in seven, City five against Leicester. I think I read that Arsenal have the second best defensive record in the league at the moment, and you've conceded six goals. So, and, and you know, now Liverpool don't have Van Dijk either. You feel like if there's any season where you could maybe get away with having a bad defence, maybe, maybe this is the one. But at the same time, you think you can't let three goal leads slip at home with 10 minutes to go and defend the way we have been and expect to achieve anything, you know, top four, let alone a title challenge, which people were talking about before. Um, but then again, you look at the attacking quality we've got and you think, well, you know, what's more likely to replicate itself? The first 80 minutes or the last 10 minutes? I hope it's the first 80. And so far in the evidence of the season, Everton game aside, all the other performances have been incredible. And a freak late equaliser against West Ham, a freak late penalty against Newcastle is all that stopped us from having four wins out of five. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, both of those were draws. It's four dropped points. And we do clearly have this weakness and this vulnerability. And, and to be honest, I'm dreading now Burnley on uh, next Monday night because you know they're going to be swinging those crosses into the box and testing our defenders. And you feel like now every team will know that they'll have a chance against Tottenham, no matter what the scoreline is, no matter how late it's gone into the match, because they've seen this collapse. So you just hope that it doesn't do too much long-term damage but then at the same time part of me looks at our attacking play at how many goals we've scored and I still feel optimistic for the season ahead I mean I'm not a gambling man but I noticed that Sky Bet after the West Ham game had made Spurs third favourites for the title presumably behind Liverpool and Manchester City I don't think we will win the title and I think what you saw in the last 10 minutes is the reason why but at the same time when you look at how weird the season's been so far and you look at how good we were in the first half, how good we were against United, against Southampton, that all still gives you reason to believe. But but then there's still the same old story at the back. So I, I don't really know what to think, to be honest. I've been going over it in my mind and I don't know. I suppose only time will tell which of those two halves ends up being more reflective of, of where we end up for the rest of the season. But... I don't know from, I mean, I know you were loving it from, from an outsider's perspective. I mean, and the fact that people were so happy to see us draw. I mean, that's the thing at the end of the day, we didn't lose. And in fact, if, if before the game you told me it would be a draw, I probably wouldn't have been that surprised or disappointed given the form West Ham were in. I mean, they beat 
what was it, Leicester 3-0, Wolves 4-0. They're on great form. They always turn up against us, but it's, you know, it's the manner that you draw that makes it feel like a defeat. But the fact that people are so happy to see us draw suggests to me that we were onto something. And I mean, I know at half time you were sending me a message about preparing to leave the country if Spurs win the title. So there's the potential there, but you, you do worry. And the fact that Mourinho has almost been here a year now and, and the defence hasn't improved. And, and I don't blame him per se, because these problems go back far longer and far deeper than him. But if they're going to take time to improve, then the question is, do we have that time? Because I've said that before, if we don't win a trophy this season, you wouldn't begrudge Kane wanting to leave because how frustrated must he be when he puts in those sort of performances and then sees the defenders make the same old mistakes at the back week in, week out, year in, year out. I mean, he in the first half was not just our best attacker. He was our best midfielder and our best defender as well. He made an incredible block just before half time. To be honest, if we put him in centre-back for the second half, we probably wouldn't have lost that game. Um, I mean, maybe that's the solution. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know what to think. I wonder from an outsider's perspective what you made of it and whether, I don't know, what you think the, uh, the, does it make you, are you worried about Spurs or do you think that second half kind of reinforces all of the cliches and stereotypes you have about us and you're, after that 6-1 United, seeing this, do you feel like you're you're no longer no longer worried now about the, the Spurs threat? Yeah, well, I have a few points to make and I think I'd latch onto that last question you asked about where I see really spurs at this stage and whether whether it's changed my opinion and i don't understand i mean it is it is kind of a sign of the premier league how you can go from you know destroying man united at old trafford to then drawing against west ham regardless of the performance and i i did write to you i wrote to all my friends that i'm willing to leave the country if spurs win the league and i was like they're ready they're going to win the league when you went three up in that amount of time, you looked unbelievable. Best football I've seen in the Premier League, probably. Better than even Man City. It was just unbelievable. Um, and I was worried. But when that first goal went in, I sort of thought, hmm, you know what? It's all looking a bit shaky. And it's something, again, about the mentality. And Arsenal had it. And Arsenal probably still do have it to an extent at the top level, um, where it just suddenly goes and you think you think it's inevitable. And that's the biggest worry and something that I didn't think I would see this early on um, with Spurs as well. So I do think you're going to be up there. I think you've got too much quality not to be. Um, but it's not a good sign of things to come. You know, you need to be... It, it's not the first time that sort of thing has happened, really, with Spurs. Um, and, you know, with like 15 minutes to go, you ca- you can't be doing that. It becomes... A collective effort as well and you can blame certain defenders and certain other players but truth is those same guys pretty much got you to to a big win at Old Trafford against arguably a better front line a more talented front line so uh, I don't know where the answer is but I certainly think if uh, if all or nothing was happening still you'd see a, uh, a few teammates bickering and blaming and Jose uh, doing a bit of his uh, dark magic if you like as well um and it comes to ask you about, um, you know, you said I wouldn't, you wouldn't begrudge someone like Harry Kane if, if they didn't win the league um, leaving, or sorry, if they didn't win the trophy leaving. And, you know, Spurs are trying, apparently, it said today in the papers, trying to get Hung Min Song to sign a new deal. And he, he seems to be, to have gone under the radar because of his humility and not necessarily breaking the records. And, and maybe because he's not an English international, you know, he is... He is the business for me. He's what's making you tick. Goals, assists, 
consistent every game. Um, it showed when he got injured last season how much he missed him as well. He's uh, he's a top, top player, and I wonder whether he might question his future as well. Because if you've been at Spurs that long and it's same old, you're thinking, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and I guess, you know, for me, and I think I said it before, why waste all that time? Albeit it, it sounds like it was a quick deal, but time, money, effort, you know, resources on bringing Gareth Bale back. Very nice, but you needed a centre-back and a good one at that you know, a Van Dyke type signing and it hasn't happened. And again, it, it's kind of, I think Spurs might rue that um, as being the game changer. And I, I wanted to ask you just about your feelings now, the dust has settled about Bale being back. I mean, he he looked decent when he came on. That free kick when he came on was hilarious. Made me laugh. Uh, <laughs> not, even a, not even an attempt. I mean, it was, it was pathetic. Um, but then when he almost scored, I don't, I don't know whether that's a sign of his skill or maybe it was just a little fluke. I'm I'm not sure whether I don't know whether there's going to be a lot of pressure on him and it might help that there aren't any fans so he can kind of you know focus on just the football not kind of trying to be the talisman and, and the and the hero has returned um, but I saw something that I think Son had been had more goals than Kane or something already and assists at this stage so what makes Bale the hero compared to those guys or is it all context dependent? I think it is, you know, context dependent. I mean, obviously, when Bale was at the club first time round, he was the main man. I mean, you had someone like Modric, but Modric wasn't really a prolific goal scorer. And I think at the time, Bale was the Harry Kane figure, whereas now our squad probably is a bit deeper and, and there's more than one player who we rely on. Um, but it's funny you say about Bale and fans not being there, because before the game, I was, thinking, I was so gutted that I couldn't be there to see Bale make his second debut and then when the match ended the way it did I was thinking oh god thank god I wasn't there but um yeah it was also up for him with that chance to that was when it was 3-2 in the 90th minute and it would have been perfect uh, homecoming for him to have scored that that chance I seem to be the only one who at the time thought it was a penalty the way he got shoved over and I think in a way he's punished for getting the shot away because if he doesn't get the shot away I think he then probably appeals to the penalty and who knows maybe it's given but that's you know refereeing decisions aren't why we, we uh, ended up throwing that game away but um, funnily enough people forget this about Gareth Bale but it took I think it was 24 matches until he featured in a winning team at Spurs and there was the whole thing about the Gareth Bale curse and then when when he came on and, and it finished three he came on at three nil and it finished three three I was thinking oh god the, the Gareth Bale curse is back it's going to be now ages until he actually features in the winning team um but look, when I mean, you're quite right to raise that point. I mean, it's definitely a move to bring him back that was guided more by emotion than anything else. And when you look at Kane and Son and, you know, even Bergwijn, Lucas, Lamella, Vinicius now in, there's an argument to be made that, that, that bringing back Bell was unnecessary. But at the same time, if you have an opportunity to do it, you know, you do it. And I think it didn't stop us from... I mean, who knows? Maybe it did. We we don't know the, the ins and outs of the financials. But by all accounts, we were still trying to sign a centre-back and would have done if the right deal had been available. Obviously, we were linked to Milan, uh, screening out from Inter Milan. Um, and we ended up signing Joe Roden still. So it didn't stop us from signing a centre-back. But yeah, we said at the time we need a centre-back. And that was the only kind of thing we doubted about how good the transfer window was. And, and now we're seeing how important 
how important that is. And, and on the Van Dyke point, I was listening this morning to uh, The View from the Lane, which is the Tottenham Hotspur Athletic podcast. And James Moore on there made an interesting comparison where he said Tottenham at the moment reminds him of Liverpool before they signed Van Dyke, where they were amazing going forwards, but they had unre- unreliable players at the back and, and their games would often be high scoring, unpredictable, you know, four threes, five fours. And it does kind of feel like that a bit. And, and maybe Milan Skriniar would have been our Van Dyke figure and maybe we'll have to go back in in him in, back in for him in January. Um, and maybe we'll regret not having signed him and maybe we won't be contenders in, until we make that sort of signing. Um, and I thought back to last season when Mourinho was saying, look, I can make this team better defensively, but it will take away from our attacking quality. And I wonder if, in a way, what he meant by that was that these defenders needed basically like you were saying a team effort to help keep a clean sheet you know van dyke is a player who if he's one-on-one with a striker you you bank on him nine times out of ten getting the better of that striker but maybe he thought if i'm going to keep clean sheets with the defenders at my disposal at tottenham i'm going to have to put 11 men behind the ball play deep and then we won't be as good going forwards and i guess it's trying to find that balance because now we're incredible going forwards but letting in goals at the back and you know I don't know if the solution is simply a personnel one of just yeah go out and sign a better centre-back or whether it's uh, a coaching one I mean the fact as I said from open play we haven't conceded that many goals tells me that the team structure and shape is okay but it's just the individual mistakes but then individual mistakes are always part of a a broader more systemic problem so I I wish we did sign a centre-back and I guess the question is would I swap Bale for a top class centre back. Uh and to be honest, <laughs> if I knew that that top class centre back was a difference between us winning the title or not, then yes. But then at the same point, you know, last season both Kane and Son were injured and we looked terrible up front. And so having now the strength and depth and having somebody of Bale's experience and quality could also make the difference in terms of winning a trophy or not. And I think if you've got a player of Bale's quality, you don't let him go or, or, or trade him in. And I'm just hoping that maybe, as I said, this season is the season where you can get away with uh, not having a top-class centre-back. But uh, I suppose any time will tell. I mean, if, if we're just going to have to outscore teams this season, I'd bank on us to do it with our forward line. And I mean, not just the, the Bale chance, but when Kane hit the post as well at 3-0, we could have scored four or five goals the other day as well. And, and you're, you're right with Hingman's son as well. He definitely goes under the radar. And I don't know why he isn't. There aren't more transfer rumours around him. I mean, I'm glad that there isn't. But I'd have thought that your Real Madrid's, your Barcelona's, Hingman's son would be an ideal target. But I hope he stays with us for a very long time. Because, I mean, let's not forget last season, there was when Kane was um, out of the team injured and we got to the Champions League final without him and Son was the talisman there was an argument at one point as to whether Spurs were better without Harry Kane I think you know we're not but Kilman's Son was the reason why people were asking that question so yeah <laughs> happy up front but nervous at the back but yeah it's, maybe uh, we are being blinded by the bail emotion but um hopefully he'll he'll score some wonder goals and and help us win a trophy and it won't matter so much but <clears throat> maybe that's me being a bit optimistic it's interesting timing as well because Spurs needs to be getting to that level where they they're an undisputed, potentially top five team if they want to get a chance at, at playing with the big boys. Because I think uh, it's quite interesting news today coming out about the potential of this European 
Premier League, Super League, something we always thought could be a possibility, could be actually happening imminently. And if Spurs uh, want to be there, they're going to need to start getting over the line and, and you know, away with this same old, same old, and, and, and in with the new, and that means winning. Yeah, I mean, on that point, I mean, obviously there's that. There was the whole project, big picture thing the other week. I mean, Arsenal obviously are a club who are mentioned in terms of those things. What What's your feelings on that and what's been the kind of Arsenal fan response to, to those stories? Well, taking away my um, rose or red tinted spectacles, I suppose, red and white tinted spectacles, um, I don't understand why we're linked with it because we're not really a big club anymore as much as we were. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably, you'd say it's uh, City, um, United, Liverpool, maybe Chelsea, um, but gradually maybe Tottenham, forgetting the last year, maybe even Leicester and Wolves, to be honest. Um, but from an Arsenal fan point of view, I haven't heard too much. It's all kind of, it's quite objective at the moment, the media coverage. I think it all seems like speculation at the moment until something's kind of announced by the official news uh, as kind of something's really going on. Um, but those two rumours within a week, especially like being led by two of the most commercially astute Premier League clubs in history, um, I think it's something that it was bound to happen because I think there's a sense that these big clubs think they can capitalise on almost the virus and everything that's happened with it and the fact that the money can sit with them and therefore they have the opportunity to get all the bucks, all the coverage and why bother with Norwich versus Derby on a Wednesday or Saturday at three o'clock if you can watch... Uh, Barcelona, Juventus. I mean, I, I understand it. I think it's just basically playing the Champions League again. I think they would have been much better off just saying, with the cha- reforming the Champions League, to say you only have the top teams in the league, like it should be. You know, everyone gets in. Obviously, you'll probably have the same suspects a lot, but that is what a Champions League really is. Um, it's not a runners-up league, although Spurs, I'm sure, would love that. Um so, so it's going to be really interesting to to see what happens. I'm not sure about from from a Spurs point of view. Is it that same kind of objective objective kind of look, or is there are there more whispers that um, it'd be something that they'd be interested in? I mean, I think the the reaction I've seen from Spurs fans online is negative. You know, not wanting to be a part of it, particularly if it means you know breaking away from the Premier League, um, which is how I feel as well. I mean, always talk of European Super Leagues. On the one hand. If you support a club that's in and around the top six, there's part of you that kind of wants your club to, in a way, I suppose, to be linked to these kind of things because it's a mark of how you are then perceived and, and your status. But on the other hand, it would seem like such a um, removal from your your origins, you know, where your roots, where you come from. I mean, what makes the Champions League special is the fact that those matches are rare. We look forward to them because they only come round once a year. If it was Juventus, PSG or, or Man United, Real Madrid every weekend, you know, that would get boring after a while. And if there was some European, you know, what would you rather be? Be a kind of, I suppose, big fish in a small pond and be one of the biggest teams in England or go and join a European Super League, but be, no disrespect to the likes of West Brom, but be the West Brom of the European Super League, you know, I, if Spurs were part of the European Super League, I don't think we'd do particularly well in it. 
and yeah okay financially it's good for the club and and maybe it's where you need to be in order to attract the very best players but would it actually be as enjoyable as what we've got now I don't think so I think we will see probably yeah changes to the Champions League whether it's the changes that should happen which you said which I agree with you know going back to how it used to be or probably making the Champions League into more of a league format where then certain teams can you know, don't get relegated and it follows more of, I suppose, a US sports model. And I think part of the whole project, big picture thing with scrapping the League Cup and, and kicking out two teams in the Premier League is to clear up more space in the schedule for the top six to take part in any expanded Champions League or kind of European Super Leagues. But it feels inevitable that something like this will happen. And there's part of you that there may be some fans who would want to see their club a part of it. But personally, I, I feel like it's Football's on a very slippery slope at the moment. I think football clubs are run the risk of, of really losing a sense of perspective. At the start of the, the, the this coronavirus situation, I think they responded well. But now increasingly, I think you're seeing football, you know, the whole the pay-per-view with the, you know, the 1495 pay-per-view thing, all this talk of, of breakaways and stuff, all whilst there's still no fans back in the stadiums. For me, I think football really does run the risk of losing its popularity because... You know, it shouldn't take for granted what it's got right now. I mean, the situation football's in right now commercially is—it's it, never had it so good as a sport, and it, it would be arrogant for it to think that this is how it's always going to be. I mean, at some point, things are going to crash back down to earth, and you know, a lot of people will have to—you know, there'd be a lot of fans who probably won't go back even when they can, because they've lost that habit now, and they won't be able to afford the tickets. And I think, yeah, we're. we're seeing now this this situation is accelerating some things that were always talked about and always rumoured and it's bringing it to the fore and I think the decisions that the powers that be take over the next few months and years could they think shape the future of football in a way that's more financially beneficial to them but I think that in the long run could turn a lot of people away from it it'd be interesting to see um but speak I mean speaking of the powers that be a certain Arsene Wenger is now very heavily involved in drafting up uh, new rules for football in his role at, at FIFA and he has been all over the place recently I feel like I've seen and heard more of him this past week than I did when he was actually Arsenal manager <laughs> um, plugging his new book which I know you've been reading Jason um, would you maybe like to give us a little book review and has it uh, changed your opinion of him and his time at Arsenal in any way yeah so I, I purchased the book um, last Monday um, must have come on Wednesday and I must have finished it on Saturday or Sunday. Uh, so a nice quick turnaround for the book. Um, I believe I'd read a biography about him a long time ago, but that was while he was still at Arsenal. It was very much praise, praise, praise. Um, at an overall level, and uh, this doesn't mean don't read the book or don't buy the book. You know, I, I encourage you to read the professor's uh, book. It was underwhelming to me. I think I used the phrase the other day, there was a lot of breadth, but not much depth. And I suppose there are a few factors involved in it. The fact that he's still politically involved with football, and especially at FIFA, he does not want to make enemies um, in football right now, and he needs the cooperation. Um, and I think you start to forget, in a way, that Arsenal wasn't his only club. You know, there was life before Arsenal and there now is life after Arsenal and I think that has a lot to do with the way in which he left I think there's you can sense a hint of resentment towards the fans for sure 
um, and towards certain sections of the board. And he hasn't named names. We don't know. But that's really interesting because you'd be worried if uh, Unai's gone quickly, Limburg didn't really stand a chance. And if Arteta gets under pressure quickly, there's something going on at that board level that might make things a little tough um, and expectations may be a little bit, bit too high. Um, I think it's really interesting the first half of the book is kind of almost where the value for me in that book is, you know, learning about his upbringing, very humble beginnings, you know, his big decision to move abroad and kind of make it as a player, um, you know, his early time at Monaco, even interacting with a bit of Spurs royalty and Glenn Hoddle, um, bringing him to Monaco, um, that move to Japan and how he transformed that club, um, even though they were really at rock bottom and that kind of interesting transition to Arsenal where, you know, he had such a hard time. There was even a story that came out saying he resigned straight away because it was such a hard time. But he, you know, he showed how resilient he was and how he was able to to say, no, I'm going to show my ideas and put them forward. And he really, um, he really, he really demonstrates that in that book, how it was kind of a slow, iterative process um, to get us to the top. I, th- I think where it it lacked was kind of every little anecdote or line you thought there's a book in each one you know that title collapse in 2008 that's a book in itself um didn't mention any of those dramatic um moments such as the big he he briefly mentioned some of the injuries and how because it happened to young players it it stifled their careers um i think what the biggest value as well and, and where i have changed my opinion of him and his tenure is how he talks about the emirates loan um move and how he talks about the bank loan and how he literally breaks down figures to say, we needed to um, do this. We were told by the bank we could only have half half our income could be spent on wages. So therefore, it literally became a, a mix and match. And he, he said, listen, it's not my money, but I was restrained by what I could do. So in a way, you can now understand why when you're offered £25 million for an older player in their last year of their contract, they have to let him go and bring it bring in the blood and i think the issue was that that used to work in his early days but the the scouting at the end was wrong it didn't it didn't bring through those gems like Vieira um who could sell on you know i think Amori Bush, Bischoff was <laughs> part of that you know young push and and it didn't quite work unfortunately and you know he 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 mentioned it's really interesting there's a page and he mentions some of the trances he made and it was really interesting the sort of list he put in you know sort of players he seemed to that seemed to stick out in his mind so alexis sanchez mas Ozil, of course with the big money um another big big one was um oh who was it who was it i can't remember now but there was some really really interesting one there andre alshavin for example i thought that there was a bit of resentment there because of the money but he kind of saw it as a really big chance for the team and how how much he lifted the team at that time and, and kind of became an icon um, of his era. Um, it's yeah, I think I think the bottom line is he it sounds like he was pushed out of Arsenal. Um, he always wanted to commit to his contract. I think he thought that, you know, he wasn't getting the resources he needed at the end. And he says it's strange because the club seems to have unlimited money now. Um, and there, but he, he reiterates that they're in a healthy position. Um, Arsenal, the club that he's always loved, always will now. He's still a fan in a way, but 
it doesn't sound like he's mad about coming back and and that might be to do with the treatment i don't know um so yeah definitely things to read definitely worth the read um but but not quite as juicy as i would have expected um but certainly makes you appreciate how well we did within our our financial constraints during those uh barren trophy years and in a way you're thinking wow if only it was like that now how easy it was just to get fourth um and it kind of goes back to that point you were asking about earlier about you know was i disappointed in that city result because you know i'm it's all very well in in usual years maybe to to go by that philosophy i said of winning all the games maybe trying to get a result out of the big games but there are so many big teams now you're starting to think you need to start up in your game and and you know some at some point the pendulum has to swing in your favor consistently um and that's where it's going to be i think those big games and and certainly spurs seem to have been able to do that slightly um so that's where i, I worry about them slightly um and yeah of course wenger's been all over the news doing his pr um something that doesn't really suit him he's not a celebrity in that fashion so he stuck out like a sore thumb on the Graham Norton show with, I don't know why they put a cricketer who doesn't like football, an actress comedian who didn't know what was going on and a Chelsea fan from across the pond on Zoom. I mean, it did not work whatsoever. And he's such a quiet man as well that he he's so much more suited to a, he would have been better off with uh, Piers Morgan life stories. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I get why they did it, but I think they probably chose the wrong audience to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wonder, when the great Jose Mourinho will, will bring out his autobiography, I'm sure it'll it'll be fascinating and and to hear what he thinks of his time at Spurs and who knows how that's going to be portrayed um, in hindsight. Whether it'll be you know his first real failure as a manager, um, not winning a trophy, or just another one to add to the list about how he transformed the fortunes of of the poor poor brother, poor cousin in North London. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. one thing's for sure, sure, when Mourinho has a book out, he'll definitely, um, he'll take to the uh, the PR publicity circuit quite well. I can imagine him doing very well on, on Graham Norton. Um, but yeah, I mean, anytime we talk, I mean, I hope you're right about Spurs in the big games, because we've got a relatively, what should be, there's no such thing as easy games anymore, but should be an easy run of fixtures. But as we said last week, a very tough fixture list coming up we're both in action in the Europa League on Thursday night who, who are Arsenal playing we're playing I believe it is Rapid Vienna mm. we're playing uh, LASK Linz mm. um, big games big game. I mean I'm not used to this Europa League business anymore I'm, I'm used to the Champions League so but now I know how you've been feeling these past few seasons with the, the Thursday night football um, but hopefully I mean you think both sides should stroll through the group stage without too much, too many problems. Uh, flash forward to uh, Elias Kalin's one Tottenham nil. Um, you should yeah. get lucky you're playing eight o'clock. We've got five to six, that really convenient time for, for everyone working who work to watch football. <laughs> That's the classic Europa League kickoff, five to six. Seen Meza Ozil is uh, mm. out of the squad, which I feel like every week. I mean, last week we were talking about Gunasaurus. Now he's, he's not even in the Premier League squad. Um, is this a surprise? Is this uh, what, what, what's happening with Ozil now? I think it, it wasn't. A, I don't think it was a real surprise he wasn't in the Europa League squad. Although you would have thought if he was going to get a run out, it'd be then. I, I thought he'd be put in the Premier League 
just to have some sort of open door in case something changes. But, you know, there have been some comments from Mertesacker saying about how outside priority, priorities have interfered with his football. I mean, I've heard a rumour about sponsors, you know, refusing to pay out if he plays. I mean, it's such a mess and someone along the line will have to admit what's gone on. Um, but no, it sounds like it's over. It sounds like they're finding a way to negotiate a severance package and I think that'll be that. Same as Socrates, but it's it's a bit strange, that Socrates thing. I thought he was he was good enough to maybe get a move not and not become another Ozil. And I think because of his probably lower wages and his age and his kind of footballing style, he won't get that much attention. Um, but, you know, you have the same thing at other clubs. Tottenham, of course, with Danny Rose, uh, Man United with Phil Jones at the moment. You, it, it just seems to happen um, with big money players um, who aren't in favour with the club. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not ideal to have that shadow and you don't know what happens in the training ground if he's in first team training he might be setting a trend and and slightly interfering with players who could be playing um in his position i don't i don't really know what's going on there but it could have an impact i think uh looking slightly forward in terms of injuries you know we have the likes of martinelli coming back um and that should bring a little injection of excitement i i don't know about spurs whether you think, you know, someone like Vinicius, I mean, you, you don't seem to have any problem with scoring, but particularly that, what's his name, Rod, Roden, uh, whether you're excited about kind of, you know, seeing something a little bit different, maybe a new signing in action. I'm I'm certainly looking forward to getting, seeing Thomas Partey really get into action and hopefully just providing a little bit extra steel where we can, um, we can perfect that game plan of being a little bit more solid at the back and countering really effectively. And, you know, We've got home to Leicester and away to United in the league next. And if we don't get if we don't get four points out of that, then I 100% say our title's over. And I'd even be tempted to say the top four would look very unlikely because I think it would be a sign of things to come. Yeah, it does seem like in a way we kind of have the opposite uh, sort of fixtures. You have some very tricky fixtures coming up on paper, but then it gets a bit easier. We've got theoretically some easier fixtures on paper, but then... A very tough run. I mean, I am hoping that Joe Roden can be the answer to our defensive woes, but who knows? I mean, it's a lot of pressure to put on someone who was probably signed more with an eye to the future than the here and now. Vinicius, as you said, was signed to fix a problem that I suppose isn't really a problem at the moment. He's kind of there if the worst happens to Kane, but hopefully we get to see him in the Europa League. Hopefully he gives us another option as well. And gives us another way to to score even more goals because it looks like we're gonna need to score a lot of them if we want to go through. I mean, it's interesting talking about the squad management because in a way, when all of our players are fit, and Mourinho kind of said this a few weeks ago, we've got probably the biggest squad I've ever seen. The fact that I mean, Deli Ali was left out of the squad against West Ham, and regularly now we're going to have some pretty big name players missing out the match day squad. I mean, most of them in the Premier League squad. I think the only kind of headline emissions, Danny Rose, which again, you kind of expect now. Um, but it will be interesting to see how Mourinho rotates with the Europa League and, and which players play when. Um, but it seems now we can absorb injuries a lot better than, than we used to. But I suppose only time will tell. We've got Burnley, Brighton and West Brom, I think, our next three Premier League games. And similar to what you said, you said, oh, if we don't take four points from Leicester United, you're writing off the title and maybe even top four. And I suppose it's similar 
for us, I mean, Burnley, Brighton, West Brom, in on certain days in certain contexts, can be tricky matches. But if you want to finish top four, you've got to take nine points from that, and we have to stop dropping points in games where we dominate. Not winning against West Ham or Newcastle, given how well we played at the start, was unforgivable. So we need, and we need to start keeping clean sheets as well. So we've got three Europa League games, I think, in between those three Premier League games. Really, if you want to be serious about competing for big things at the end of the season, it needs to be six wins and you need at least clean sheets in, in three of them. But given that we conceded to Lokomotiv Plovdiv, I'm not holding out much hope for the, the clean sheets, but maybe the victories will come. Well, I hope for you that they don't. Um, and maybe for you as well, that uh, someone finds um, Matt Doherty from his road trip from Wolverhampton because it seems like he's got lost on the road. Yeah, yeah, He, I, I want him to be back in the first team. So, I mean, already, to be fair, played very well against Chelsea and Man United, but, yeah. Um. No comment. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, and it's live.